working through. And Brother Chuck, am I correct? If we ever finished First Peter, are we doing Second Peter? Are the, uh, yes, Brother Chuck and I, after long deliberation. <laughs> yeah, we'll just we'll do we'll do Second Peter uh, there thereafter. And uh, but we're not going to do Third Peter. No, we're just. <laughs> yeah, that's a Jim Hastings class. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we're in First Peter chapter four, and we're going to pick up today at verse twelve. Give you a quick summary as you're turning there to what we covered. Uh, we looked at Peter's exhortation to respond rightly to one another as Christians. And he did so by using a repeated phrase, one another. So in the first 11 verses, he gave us three one another responsibilities. Love one another, that's in verse 1. Down below it, be hospitable to one another. Very important in a day of persecution. The Christians had no place to stay. Fleeing for their lives. Hospitality was so important. Love one another. Be hospitable to one another. And then the third was serve one another. So now we're going to press on. But please remember the overarching context of the letter. It's the persecution of those who are devoted followers of the Lord Jesus. It was an atmosphere of increasingly aggressive uh, persecution of Christians. In that atmosphere, Peter says, you better stick together. Hence the one another phrases. He's essentially saying, you're hated. Don't take it personally. You're hated because of your identification with the Lord whom was crucified. Now more than ever, they are forced to stick together. Love one another, be hospitable to one another, serve one another. And now he says more about the persecution. It's in verse 12. Notice, beloved. So who is that a reference to? All believers, all Christians. So who are all Christians loved by? Loved by Jesus. Did he make a mistake in calling you his beloved? Does he call you his beloved because he just doesn't know you that well? You think so? I mean, if you really knew me for who I am, uh, you wouldn't call me the object of your affection. So that's us being arrogant, isn't it? That's us trying to talk God out of loving us. We do it, you know. You know what's a good thing to do? Stop. (laughs) Just accept the fact God has designated you the object of his love. And he knows you fully. He knows everything about you. You have no secrets you do, we do from one another, but nothing is kept from him with full information, in full possession of all the facts about you. He designated you his beloved. You know, that's enough to give you some victory in life. Just the word. That's why I'm emphasizing it. You're the beloved. And you are the beloved in the eyes of the Most High God. The highest authority calls you His beloved. If He's the Most High God, then His perspective should hold more water than yours, should it not? So you may not feel lovable or lovely. It's irrelevant. He does. And he's the most high God. You may have received messages to the effect that you're not lovable. Many of us have, you know, growing up. It's irrelevant. He's the most high God. 
So I'm affected by messages to the contrary, but I don't want to be mastered by them. See the difference? I want to quickly move from them to the fact, just one word, encapsulated in it is everything I need to make a go of life. I'm the beloved of the most high God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Peter was preparing them for increasingly severe persecution. He speaks of it metaphorically as a fiery ordeal. He's preparing them knowing they may be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it, he says. It will come upon you for your testing. But don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, what is he getting at? Look, look. Many Christians labor under the misconception that having accepted Christ, life will be a bowl of cherries. It's not true. In fact, some of us have sold the gospel on that basis. We've told someone, if you surrender to Christ as Savior, you'll have no hardships in life. In so many words, we've done that. Well, we really have set them up to take a big fall. That's attractive salesmanship, but it's not biblical. The fact of the matter is, Christians are not immune from the hardships and pains of life. And on top of the normal ones, we'll have the abnormal experience of suffering in the name of Christ. He says, therefore, don't be surprised as though it's a strange experience. What do you mean strange? Well, a naive Christian may say, if God is good and if As you say, he loves me. If I'm his beloved, then I should not be going through things that hurt. How do I harmonize hurt with the love of God? I can't bring the two together, and therefore it's strange when I go through difficult times. It's unfamiliar. I can't harmonize it with the character of God. It should not be. Sometimes Christians in those situations get angry at God, even turning away from him. Peter wants to prepare people, keep them from doing that. So he says, don't be surprised and don't think this is strange. Now, I know this is not the kind of thing that's a very attractive message. I know it's better to write books, go on TV and talk to people about how... um, You can have anything you want as a Christian if you set your mind upon it. Be positive, think positive, name it, claim it. It's yours. It's a very attractive message. I know it must be because tons of people flock to hear it. Certain platforms every Sunday. I'm attracted to the message. The problem is it's not a biblical message. Verse 12 is a biblical message. I would like to hear that preached one Sunday from certain platforms, even in our own city. I really want you to tell me that Jesus is Santa Claus. Divine, though he may be. Tell me he's Santa. And if I do things right, I'll get from Santa whatever I want, you see what I mean? But that's not the Bible. The Bible tells me don't be surprised at a fiery ordeal which may come upon you. But even this is for your testing. What does that mean? To test in the sense of pass, fail? No. You already passed. (laughs) You already passed the final exam. Did you know? Don't fear the final exam. Here's the final exam. On What basis should I let you into my heaven? That's the final exam question. And here's the answer. You're going to say on the basis of the merits of your son who I have accepted as my savior. And the father says, 
enter in. You done passed. Now, for those who've already said that, you passed. So this is not test in the sense of that kind of exam. It means purifying, perfecting, much like metal when it's fired up in a furnace is tested in the sense that its impurities are burnt off and what emerges is a stronger, more valuable kind of metal. Peter is saying bad stuff is on the way, but even the bad stuff can be used by God for good. And the good is... He can use even this to purify and strengthen his people in such fashion that what emerges from it all is a more valuable Christ-like product. Don't think it's strange. Don't think, Peter says, it's incompatible with the love of God for his beloved kids to go through tough times. Here's the premier example. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. You and I are adopted sons and daughters. Speaking of adoption, Linda, we all are, aren't we, in Christ? But he's the only begotten Son of God. And he's designated as the Son with whom, says the Father, I am well pleased. But he suffered an excruciating death on a cross. That tells me Suffering is not inconsistent with sonship. He was really the beloved. He really suffered. Why shouldn't we have the experience? It's not inconsistent with the love of God to be a Christian going through difficult times, which God intends to use for our good, whether we see it or not. So I'll tell you something that will help you. There are two fundamental questions you have to answer for yourself. And I hope you answer these rightly. If you get the answer to these two questions rightly, you'll have greater victory in living life. Here's the first. Is God sovereign? The second, is God good? You have to figure that out. See, here's the deal. Is God sovereign? Is he in control? If your answer is no, ah, now you just have an explanation for the fiery ordeal of life. You could preserve the goodness of God. You could say he's good, but he's just not in control. And therefore, though he does love me, he can't help me. He can't keep me from the fiery ordeal. That's why I go through such tough times. He wishes he could do something, but his arm is not that long. It doesn't extend itself sufficiently to get me out of tough times. So if your answer to that question, is God sovereign? If your answer is no, you just have an explanation for the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing. But if you say, oh, no, that's not true. God is sovereign. My answer is yes. He's the most high God. He's the almighty. He's in control. Then you're faced with the second question. Okay, he's sovereign, but is he good? Now, if you say, no, he is sovereign, but he's not good, now you have an explanation for difficult times as well. You could say, though he's powerful, he doesn't care. He is the almighty, he's omnipotent, he's above it all. In fact, he's so above it all, he couldn't care less about the hard times I go through. So he's sovereign, yes, but he's not good. Those aren't good answers. You know what helps me to be reminded of the fact that God is both sovereign and good? It's the cross. I'll tell you what I mean. I know he's sovereign because he's not on the cross anymore, nor in the grave, which was the consequence of dying on the cross. So if he demonstrated power over death, which not a person here can overcome, You die, and the proof that it's over is that you're put in the ground. Usually you don't put living people six feet under. The evidence that death is final is that you're put in the ground. For this Jesus 
to have died, but then risen up from it, tells me he's the Almighty. He won victory over that which is so part and parcel of the human condition, we don't even know what life is without its termination. But Jesus said, it doesn't terminate me. Death does not terminate me. I override even death. That tells me he's sovereign. And the cross also tells me he's good because he took to it for me and for you. He went through excruciating suffering. Why? Because he's good. He rose up from it. Why? Because he's sovereign. Now, those two questions will help you have greater victory in life because we go through a fiery ordeal, however it is, and we don't get it. It's hard to figure out. But then I say, God, I don't understand things. But I believe you're sovereign. And I believe you're good. And though life circumstances fluctuate and vacillate and change, you don't. The one constant in life is the unchangeable character of God. In fact, that's the only constant in life. Everything else changes. And in our day, it's such a rapid clip. Your head spins. Goodness gracious. But Jesus is the rock, permanence, stability, unchangeable. Jesus is the same, the Bible says, yesterday, today, and forevermore. He remains sovereign and good, though life's circumstances change. The constancy of his character is what gives victory in life. We say, God, I don't understand this. I don't like this. I didn't see it coming. It hurts but you're sovereign and you're good. And I'm going to filter any life circumstance through the grid of your unchangeable character. I can't explain this or that or the other thing that has befallen me, but I can rest in the fact that you're sovereign and that you're good and that somehow you can use even this to perfect me, to purify me, to make me even more like you to get me ready for heaven. So Peter's preparing them. He uses the term fiery ordeal as a metaphor, but I wonder if it even had a literal application because in this day, Nero, the crazed Roman emperor, was doing unbelievable things. Rome burned. He blamed Christians. To punish them, he covered a number with pitch, tar, and he set them on fire using them as living dying torches to illuminate his own palatial gardens in Rome. A fiery ordeal literally came upon them. And I wonder if Peter is saying, now that this behavior has authorization from the emperor in Rome, maybe other Roman governmental authorities throughout the empire will do the same. So he's saying, but don't be surprised by it. And don't think It's a strange thing happening uh, to you. But, verse 13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. Now, wait just a second. Keep on rejoicing? Look, I'm working at growing in Christ. And the reason I'm working at it is that I haven't arrived. (laughs) And this is one I don't quite have yet. To the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. I want to get there, but I'm not quite there. Look, to the degree I share in the glory of Christ... Yes, I can rejoice. To the degree I share in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. That is contrary to my natural way of thinking. But it's exactly what the Bible says. To the extent you share in the suffering of Christ, and nobody will have to, to the full extent he did, but to the degree you share in the suffering of of Christ to the degree your experience of suffering offers you 
communion with his suffering, keep on rejoicing. Holy moly. That's different. But then I have to think about rejoicing and what that means. And now I'm getting it a little more. It doesn't say be happy. To the degree that you suffer in the sufferings of Christ, be happy. It doesn't say that. It says rejoice. So what's the difference? Well, you've heard it said, and it's true. Happiness depends on what happens. But joy continues in spite of what's happening. Happiness depends on what happens. You get a good diagnosis, you should be happy. A child gets a good job, you should be happy. You win the lottery. No, we don't do that. (laughs) Certain life circumstances that happen create an understandable happiness. But the problem with tying all that to what happens is that you're tied to what happens. So that means if what happens is a good thing, you're happy. And if what happens is a bad thing, you're unhappy. And oh my goodness, that's up and down. And so God offers something entirely different. He said, how about joy? Because joy is something on the inside that persists in spite of what happens. Joy is a function of your Covenant relationship with the Christ whose character is consistent. Joy. No matter what's happening, I'm in a covenant relationship with a sovereign and good God, and he will never let me go. I'm his beloved. I don't get what's happening. I don't like what's happening. I didn't expect what's happening. I don't want what's happening. Sure, all valid. But I can have joy in spite of what's happening because even though I feel like I may be losing my grip, I'm held onto by the one who will not let me go. How do I know this? He said so. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing that happens can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I don't get what's happening. I don't like what's happening. It doesn't, it's irrelevant. I'm in a covenant relationship with a God whose character remains consistently the same. That's the source of joy. So Peter says, to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Now, by the way, if he says that, that means I can do that. There's nothing in the Bible we're required to do that we can't do. That's the cool thing about this being God's book. He doesn't have unrealistic expectations or demands. There's no command issued in the Bible that he will not enable us to comply with. That wouldn't be him. So this one, this imperative, keep on rejoicing, means something I can accomplish. But I can't accomplish it if rejoicing is primarily a feeling. I won't be able to keep on feeling a certain way. Why? Because feelings come and go. Emotions fluctuate for crying out loud. It happens all the time. In fact, my dear sister Betty asked me this morning as we crossed paths in the parking lot, are you in a good mood today? (laughs) That's what Betty said. It's a good question. Our moods, emotional makeup, it fluctuates up and down, you know, that kind of thing. So if Peter is saying, uh, keep on being at a certain emotional level, I don't think I could do that. But he doesn't. He says, keep on rejoicing. How could he say that? Rejoicing is a state of mind. Rejoicing is a matter of the mind. Rejoicing is a mind set on the fact that I'm inseparably connected to an unchangeable God by covenant which he authored and initiated for me. It's a mind thing. It's a mind that says, no matter what's happening outside of me, inside of me, I'm held onto by one who's sovereign and good, will not let me go, calls me his beloved, tells me he'll never leave me nor forsake me. I can rejoice. It's a mind thing. So he says, keep on rejoicing. Why? Well, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So I don't want to miss this. 
the revelation of his glory. It sounds like it's a really important event. So help me here because I don't want to be occupied or confused. I don't want to miss it. When is the time Peter is speaking of here and referring to as the revelation of his glory, the revelation of Christ's glory? When do you think that's, that is? Just tell me because I don't want to. What do you say? At his return and you are correct. <laughs> Thank you so much, because we don't want anyone to miss it. And by the way, if you're a Christian, you won't miss it. It's not going to be subtle <laughs> when the Lord returns. Yes, ma'am. Yes, that is true, Marjorie. No question about it. The revelation of his glory is the time of his return. Now listen to this. Peter is saying you ought to keep on rejoicing now because you are going to be rejoicing then. When he returns at the revelation of his glory, you will rejoice with exultation. So here's what he's saying. Live today in light of tomorrow. Do you know today is going to pass? Whatever is happening does not have an eternal quality. No life circumstance is of eternity. No presidential administration will last forever. No health care plan will last forever. No war will last forever. On and on and on. I didn't say we should be uncaring and unaffected by these things, but we ought not be so oppressed by these things that it extinguishes the wonderful privilege we have to rejoice. Why should I rejoice now? Because everything that's happening is going to give way at the time of the revelation of the Lord's glory, at which time I will rejoice with great exultation. So Peter is simply saying, practice now what you're going to be doing forever. Rejoice. So I like to do some math. Um, I like to take my age and subtract it from the average life expectancy for a person living today. Does anyone know what the average life expectancy is, say, for an American living today? 74, says Charlie, something like that. That's what the first class said. They said 76. They're more optimistic than you. <laughs> Let's say 75. Oh, because oh, you're 75. Okay, good. <laughs> I think it actually is in the 70s, is it not? Yeah. Something like that, which is pretty average life expectancy. So, so I, I subtract my age from that and I say, this is so cool. I don't have that many years left. I'm just thrilled about that. So what's happening, which sometimes seems like it's never going to stop. Yeah, it is. Do the math. So if the Lord tarries and he doesn't return first, but if he calls me to him first, Hallelujah. Now, it just puts things in a different perspective. Don't you see? Nothing here has an eternal quality. This too shall pass. Keep on rejoicing now. Why? Because at the time of his revelation, the revelation of his glory, when he ushers in things of real eternal consequence, you will rejoice with great exultation. We're just living in the parenthesis between his first coming and his second. We're just living in between the parentheses, I should say. His first coming took place. His second coming is going to take place. I'm here. I'm not even in the middle. I think I'm much further in this direction. I'm no date setter, but I don't have to. I know how many years. I, I mean, I'm not living to be 200. I don't care how many carrots my wife makes me eat. <laughs> I'm not going to be. I mean, just think about it. It's really, it's really cool. <laughs> Um, so it says, if you are reviled in the name of Christ. It doesn't say since you will be. It says if you are. Why? That's just not going to happen to everybody. If you are reviled in the name of Christ. You know, could I tell you something? I've had almost no experiences, almost none, of being reviled in the name of Christ. A few but very few in my time as a Christian. So I have mixed emotions about that. In part, I'm thankful to God. 
But then in part, I wonder if I'm living right as a Christian. I mean, I wonder if I look like one. Or do I just fit in? Do I look like everyone else and therefore I'm not going to be reviled in the name of Christ because I don't look like I'm following him? I don't know what it is. I'm working on that one too. But this says, if you are reviled in the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, wait just a second. That's another thing I don't get. Do you know reading the Bible is meant to transform your mind? My mind, your mind. Why? Because our minds are filled with things put in there through life experience before we met Christ. But then when we meet Christ, we get the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is different than... His thinking is different than our thinking, don't you think? Because here's the Bible thinking. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Now, hang on just a second. Someone tears you up <laughs> verbally, reviles you, and you're blessed. Now, look, look, look. If you um, are liked by everyone, you are blessed. If you inherit a million dollars from your rich aunt, you are blessed. If you, yeah, I, I got that. If you are reviled in the name of Christ, you are blessed. Hello. And yet it's true, isn't it? In the last class, the man lost his job once for being a Christian. And he said it was inexplicable. I couldn't explain it. It was the best time of my life, he said. I was blessed. And then he said, God supplied me with another one at twice as much income. Yeah, I could relate to that one, you know, Charlie. So, um, one of the reasons for reading the Bible is to have your mind, yours, mind, our minds transformed. Did you know when you became a Christian, I don't know if you knew this, you signed up for transformation? I don't know if you you knew that. Maybe you wouldn't have signed up. When you said, come into my life, Lord Jesus, and uh, be my Savior, forgive my sins, take up your abode in my life, and have your way with me, whoa, boy. You signed up for transformation, and he is a transformer. And that explains all the stuff we're going through. We're being transformed. We're being pruned. We're being purified. There's a bit of a fiery ordeal, which is coming upon us to get rid of a bunch of stuff because we're in this for transformation. And transformation starts in the mind, doesn't it? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? That's what it says. So this one kind of changes my mind about stuff. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're actually blessed. Why? Well, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Wow. So if someone puts you down for the name of Christ, don't worry, because the very spirit of God will lift you up. That's a whole new thing. We all fear rejection. We all want the approval of others. This says if you get rejection and meet with disapproval because you identify with the name of Christ, don't worry, you'll be blessed by Christ. His very spirit will lift you up. Then it says in verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as, look what it lists, a murderer, thief, evildoer, or troublesome meddler. Why does it say that in this connection? Look, not all suffering brings upon us blessing. A number of us as Christians suffer because we made sinful decisions. That doesn't bring blessing. That brings consequence. So we've got to sort of fess up and admit it. This is tough in today's day because this is the day of everyone's a victim and nobody's responsible. (laughs) So you have a person in high places who has uh, schemed, deceived, manipulated, and plotted an extramarital affair, which has been ongoing for years and years with some woman out of country. And in order to get to her, he flies at taxpayer expense. And then he's found out, and he says, I made a mistake. (laughs) So so let me tell you what... 
what really we'll never hear, but we ought to hear. We ought to hear, I raised myself above the Most High God. I spat in the face of the Creator who made his moral absolutes clear to me. I rejected him and in outright conscious, willful, deliberate rebellion, I sought to meet my own needs outside of his will because I believe I could take better care of myself than the very God who gave me life. And so I violated his standards and I broke my word given to my wife. Therefore, you who have elected me to public office have no reason to trust me now. I have violated your trust and therefore I will step down immediately, probably never to seek public office again. For I have sinned, I have transgressed, I have committed iniquity against the Most High God. Thank you for listening. Pray for me. Goodbye. Instead we get, it was a poor decision. I made a mistake. Over and over again. Nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. Nobody should be crucified. Nobody need be. For Christ also died for sins once for all. I don't bring this up. So there'd be punitive action of that sort against anyone. I just use it as an illustration. This is the day of nobody sins anymore. Did you ever notice no bad people ever die? I mean, funerals are getting to be the most dishonest place on earth. You get a moral reprobate. And he's eulogized like he's a saint. I don't exactly know how to handle that, except, you know, uh, it's a lie. Ricky? Yeah. Yes, good point. Yeah. Very excellent distinction Rick makes in case you didn't hear. And sometimes we think forgiveness means allowing someone uh, uh, to avoid the consequences uh, of the of the transgression, sometimes it, the consequence is forfeiture of position, whether it be pastor or politician. So it doesn't mean we hate or crucify a person, but as a, an act of love, you can't minimize the wrongdoing, even though you embrace the wrongdoer. That's a very good point you make. Well, I think what's happening here is that Peter is saying, if you suffer, don't suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, boom, boom, boom. Because um, <clears throat> uh, he's saying, let's say you're a persecuted people. And let's say there's orchestrated, as in Peter's day, governmental opposition to your Christian value system. See, that existed here. Orchestrated governmental encroachment upon freedom uh, of worship. Christians were being put upon in an orchestrated way by the government. Peter is saying if that happens, you may be tempted to do certain things outside the will of God. For instance, if the government comes and takes your property, 
uh, because you're a Christian, and that's part of the, and by the way, it's happened before, you may be tempted to steal to get it back. If the government authorize, authorizes murder of Christians, by the way, that has happened even in modern days in various places, and, and it's liable to happen again. Should that happen, he's saying, you may feel authorized to murder in return. You're not authorized to do so. So he's saying if you're suffering as a Christian, don't be ashamed. God can take care of you even then. Don't be surprised at that fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your perfecting. Don't think it's some strange thing. Don't question the sovereignty and goodness of God. Keep on rejoicing in it as you shall when Christ returns. And do not... um, Uh, act in a carnal way in response to the persecution by murdering in return, by stealing in return, by being evil in return. Uh, Last week I mentioned to you we are not permitted the luxury of revenge. We're not. It's not an option available to us anymore. We're not permitted... Never take your own revenge, beloved. Once again, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God. God can handle, and he did, Nero and Stalin and Hitler and fill in the blank. I shall not, but you can, you should fill in the blank. So be careful uh, that the suffering is not due to your own misbehavior and sin, which you palm off as poor judgment or a mistake or something like that. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, verse 16, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. In other words, don't be ashamed of maybe suffering shame as a Christian. If you suffer as a criminal, be ashamed. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. For suffering in, see it says this name, it's the name Christian, which by the way is only referred to three times in the entire New Testament here and two places in Acts and it was probably used in a derogatory sense. So unsaved people would call saved people, ah, oh, there is a Christian. But they didn't mean it in a good way. <laughs> We're seeing a lot of that today even. Where the term which is so meaningful to us, is used in a derogatory, demeaning way. This is saying, don't worry about it. Don't be ashamed of being shamed as a Christian. Uh, It is a blessing to be identified with Christ. Think about it. A Christ follower. Wow, what an identity. A Christian. A Christ one. Christ meaning anointed one. Are you a follower of the anointed one? Well, sure. Are you a devoted follower of this Christ? You bet. A Christ one. Wow. Attached. Allied. Together. Not separated. Belonging to. Connected to. Embraced by forever. Oh, you're darn tootin'. I would rather be a Christ one than anything else. Right. You would too. So this is saying don't be ashamed of being labeled as a Christian. I think we should stop there because, uh, we'll pick up Lord willing in verse 17. It's kind of an interesting passage and we'll finish Lord willing, uh, chapter 4, maybe get into the first few verses of chapter 5 a little bit. Uh, But folks, here's the deal. You and I have to constantly put our thoughts under the microscope or under the lens of the Word of God because our mind is not quite, quite like Christ's mind just yet. But we have the mind of Christ available to us, so we want to tap into it. What I mean is our thinking is not quite exactly like his thinking just yet. Peter addresses it. 
Don't be thinking that pain <laughs> and the privilege of being loved by God are inconsistent. They're just not. Know that God loves you, but his love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. So you're being tested or proven so as to be purified. The outcome, oh, at the day of the revelation of his glory, you'll be there rejoicing with great exaltation. And therefore, you ought to get into the habit of doing now what you're going to be doing then. So keep on rejoicing now. And rejoicing has little to do with how you're feeling and much more to do with how you're thinking and believing. Do you still believe that God is sovereign and that God is good? If the answer is yes, yes, then that's the cause for rejoicing in spite of what's happening. Now, that's a whole lot of mind stuff i got to work on because my natural mind says, if you loved me, Santa, you'd give me what I want for Christmas. <laughs> you would do things my way. You would make me feel good all the time. And God says, I love you too much to give you what you want only. I'm going to give you what you need. You need the stuff of eternity. And I'm not waiting for you to give me permission. (laughs) You're the beloved to such an extent that I'm willing to let you to go through some stuff here. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal in order for you to reap eternal gain to come. I got to work on that one. I waver. So do you. That's why I got to keep on meditating. Let me just finish with this. I don't read or watch the news much. One time I did an experiment. I let three weeks go and I kept away from the news. I came back at three weeks and it looked like nothing changed. So I kind of feel like if there's anything I really need to know, one of you will call me and tell me. <laughs> Stuart, we got to get out of Houston, the bad guys. Okay, good, I'll go with you. I'm sure one, so I don't need to keep up on it. Instead, because it kind of brings me down, you know what I mean? It extinguishes the joy. So instead, I want to fill my head with Scripture. So I memorize it, and I really encourage you to memorize Scripture. You've got to think about something. It's either going to be the news or the good news. So i rather think on the good news. So I'm working on a verse. Listen, listen. Now may the God of hope. Oh, that's the one I'm chewing on. Just the, the God of, it doesn't say the God of depression. It doesn't say the God of anxiety. It doesn't say the God of guilt, the God of shame, the God of destruction. May the God of hope, he's the author of it. He has a reservoir of it. He disseminates it. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. There it is again. Doesn't say happiness. Joy and peace. That's the opposite of anxiety. How? In believing. It doesn't say in doing, in trying, in petitioning, in crying, in fasting, in giving, These may be all good things. It says all joy and peace in believing. Believing what? God is sovereign. God is good. God is the Most High. And He loves me. That you may abound in hope. Oh God, I can't do this alone. That's right. By the power of the Holy Spirit. The experience of the joy and peace which the God of all hope is more than willing to give comes to me in partnership with his spirit in me. That's right. I can't get it alone in the power of the Holy. Listen, I want to tell you something. I've been chewing on that for three days. Helps me get to sleep. Helps me get back to sleep if I wake up. Helps me to come to church. I have to tell you something. I ride to church and... uh, I can't speak for Brother Chuck, but I fake it. <laughs> it's hard standing up in front of people. It's just really, really hard because you feel like, how am I going to do? How am I going to do? 
let's just face it, nobody's secure enough for this stuff to come easy. So a lot of times I find myself pulling in. I'm getting a little anxious about stuff. So instead, with all due respect, I didn't think about you. I had to put you out of my mind. And I was just feasting on that. That's Romans 15. Made a God of hope. And I just walked across the parking lot until I ran into Betty Payne. And she, and she questioned my mood and stuff like that. That lady right there. No, I'm the only kid. But, uh, but, but uh, I feel like I do better, you see, when I think on the right stuff. You do too. The Bible says the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. I don't want to set it on CNN and all this other kind of. People read too much. You're reading too much about what's happening. You ought to feast on God's eternal truths. I can't change what's happening for crying out loud. In fact, what's happening changes me if I don't watch it. I don't want to be worn out, cynical, all this bitter, you know, kind of. Did you hear about the latest? Yeah, the latest for me is Romans fifteen thirteen. There's a God of hope. I'm not waiting for politicians to get it fixed up. They broke it. They can't fix what they done broke. I want to feast on the God of hope. There's hope. Anyway, I challenge you. Memorize scripture. You got a thing on something. Might as well be truth. So, Lord Jesus, thanks for everything. Whoa. Thank you. Look, Lord, you saved us from sin. We know that. But I think you also saved us from thinking that's just not right. You gave us the mind, the mind of Christ, a sound mind. Oh, God, as long as we feed it with good, sound truth. So, Father, put it within us to fight thoughts and to replace false thinking with which that which is true. This is true. I am, we are the beloved. You are the lover of our soul. You proved it by paying the ultimate price. You remind us of it daily. God, I'm not going to talk you out of it. And circumstances notwithstanding, we are in a covenant bond with you a God of constant, unchangeable character. You're sovereign, you're good, and I don't have to have the rest of it figured out. I just have to be enveloped by your love. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We're going to make it in spite of the fiery ordeal which comes upon us for our purification. Thank you for your investment in our lives, and we look forward for the day of the revelation of your glory, during which time we will rejoice with great exultation. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. See you next time.